Arts, Lifestyle, SNS Online. First of all, you need an old detergent bottle. Oh, get off me foot! Here's the wall of flame again, this time in slow motion. And that is me strapped to the bonnet. All that training, all that work was worth it for a minute and a half of unforgettable freefall. If you'd been introduced to Biddy as an editor, you would absolutely assume that you must mean she's the editor of Vogue or Harper's. She would resent ruthless, but she was ruthless on behalf of the audience, and I think she would accept that. I loved her. I loved her. I thought she was a one-off. I thought she, she was terribly astute. I thought, yeah. I like this woman. She's going to be a challenge, but I'm going to really enjoy working with her. Hello! Welcome to Live Peter. Today we are so excited. Hello and welcome to, well, not Blue Peter, but SNS Online. Today, helping to celebrate no less than 60 years of what has been recently voted the best children's programme of all time. And who better to have in the studio today to talk about her very own personal involvement in a show that would simply not be here today without her? Only Blue Peter royalty itself, BAFTA award-winning editor Billy Baxter, MBE. Welcome to the show, Billy. I can't uh, explain how excited I am to have you in the studio oh, today. Nick, you must stop. You're <laughs> unblushing already. How kind. You must be in big demand at the moment, I would imagine. 60 years of celebrations, um, demands on your time? Well, quite a bit, yes. Yes, um, it'll wear off, I'm sure. <laughs> Let's take it back to your early days and uh, childhood. What were you enjoying? What were you consuming as a child in the form of um, entertainment and, uh, and, and learning? Well, ov obviously radio, because um, mm. television was, was, was <laughs> hardly there. But um, I was fanatically uh, interested in the children's hour. Uncle Mac, they, they, they had uncles and aunties in those days <laughs> from, you know, North Ireland, Scotland, Wales. And, uh, but the, the sort of King Ping was Uncle Mac. This is the BBC Home Service. Hello, children everywhere. And I got terribly excited when I must have been about seven. I should explain, I come from Leicester, and there's a great thing in the Leicester Mercury that Uncle Mac was, was, was coming, and he was going to be at Morgan and Squire's departmental store, such and such a whatever. Anyway, I was <laughs> absolutely thrilled, because uh, he was a, such a big idol. But I didn't know, and probably a lot of people didn't know, that he'd been badly wounded in the war, and... Um, and was really exceedingly bad-tempered. Oh, gosh. <laughs> and, and never, it, never meet your heroes. <laughs> well, exactly. It, it was really uh, very upsetting. But, um, you know, one got over it. But it I was... Mean, why it, did he bother to turn up if he was going to be a, a, such a grouch? <laughs> well, presumably he was being paid yeah, for money, it. Money. I, I, I don't know, but it was deeply disappointing. But I mean, I was the I was a terrific uh, fan of the radio children's hour, mm. which was very, very good indeed, mm. and, and um, had everything in it. You know, they, and, and 
marvellous dramas uh, and really made, I think, quite a difference to, to my life as a child. I was lucky, really, as a child, to have been brought up in the war, the Second World War, because when you were a child, you didn't understand the whole horror of it, mm. but you could be involved in all kinds of things uh, to raise funds, mm. bring and buy sales and raffing. I remember I always liked teddy bears rather than dolls, mm. uh, and I had this doll called Jennifer, which I didn't like terribly, so I went round the roads near where we lived uh, with this doll uh, and a collecting tin and I went, I knocked on people's doors and asked if they'd like to buy raffle tickets for it. I mean, the thought of it nowadays with going to strange people's houses and asking for, <laughs> asking for money and I, the other thing that was a huge, huge um, shock when, when I was a child, I can still feel the shockwaves now. Um, at the beginning of the last war, uh, we were living in Leicester and there was quite a bit of bombing because the planes that were going over to demolish Coventry used to go over Leicester as well. And um, my father and mother decided that better to get out of you know, the main bit of Leicester. Anyway... We're in this old gamekeeper's cottage in an area called Bow Manor Park. And um, we had billeted on us one of the staff there who was called Miss Vaines. Anyway, Miss Vaines. We were Miss Vaines. And she was very peculiar, I thought. As a, as a child, I was about seven, I, I think, at the time. Mm. And she always used to... Uh, she used to keep her bedroom door tightly shut and uh, was most intriguing, un 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 unsociable. And I was intrigued, you know, why was her door always shut? What was going on? And I did the most terrible thing. One morning, I went, when she was out, she was out, she was working somewhere. Mm. I went into her bedroom and just to have a nose around and see what was going on. To my horror, I heard footsteps <gasps> on the stairs da, da, da. I did absolutely with a vengeance I got behind a rather large armchair just in the nick of time this is scandalous Bertie. this is scandalous well, well then it, got, it gets worse <laughs> she then took out her chamber pot and used it and I was stuck oh behind this chair, absolutely petrified. Um, but she did eventually go out, oh. and I, I, I wasn't discovered. It was an awful oh, thing to have done, damn. but that feeling of, of terror. Oh. And thank God there was this big armchair, because I don't think she might have murdered me otherwise. Yes. <laughs> So Durham University called in 1952, where you studied social sciences. What was Durham like? Uh, 
I loved Durham. I mean, it was it was a marvelous three years, but I didn't want to stay any longer. Sure. And um, they were quite um, in the forefront of fashion. I, I mean, intellectual fashion, I suppose. <laughs> in that they just started it up. You went to see him in your last term. Oh well, the careers uh, advisors. That's right. That's yeah, sorry. Yes, career. Absolutely. Yes, yes they're quite quite right. <laughs> a- anyway. Because I didn't really have a clue what I was getting. I thought I thought actually for a little while I'd like to be a psychiatric social worker. But any wow. any anyway, I had this appointment with this new chap, and he was called. The, funny how the name sticks in one's mind. B. E. Q. Smith, oh. and um, you go to his office, and he had um, sort of application forms for places all over the country, industry, and whatever to my mind, is slightly boring. Mm. And then um, I saw this marvellous BBC advert and he said, are you interested in the arts? Do you like current affairs? And and I said, oh, Mr Smith, this is very interesting and I'd like to apply for this. To which he replied in really appalled tones, Oh, Miss Baxter, no one from Durham has ever joined the BBC. So, of course, that made me absolutely determined. I should think so, too. To to apply. And I had a marvellous, marvellous three years. It was... was... Because after you left Durham, and obviously that uh, light bulb moment when you saw that advert, you uh, apparently joined the BBC in 1955 as a radio trainee studio manager. So, yes. so it says here, yeah, creating yes. sound effects. I was very good on the sound effects. It was you and Esther Ransom. <laughs> oh, well, I, I think I predated Esther a bit. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe not, maybe not. But um, I was very, I mean, I was very lucky. And, and then, of course, once you're in, um, there are all these other jobs that are possibilities. I mean, it was all very, very dem- democratic. I'm really very, very grateful. And, of course... It was the radio was marvelous, and I adored doing all the sound effects. And and uh, the props store was in what is now called the Langham Hotel, frightfully oh, small. And that's that's where you went to um, to get to get all your bits and pieces for all Absolutely. your sound effects in the studio. So how did um, how did that segue into Listen with Mother, which I think you joined in 1958? The time is a quarter to two. Uh, well, it was it was um, advertised, uh, and I put in for it, and uh, and I got it. I can't I can't explain why. This is the BBC for mothers and children at home. Are you ready for the music? When it ends, Eileen Brown will be here to speak to you. was absolutely marvellous. I mean, they, they, uh, nobody interfered with you because um, it was probably considered to be a very insignificant programme. But that's, but that's the best way forward, isn't it? If you're left to your own devices to get on with it, it it's so much easier. Oh, absolutely. Marvellous, marvellous. And then uh, I was transferred, I asked to be transferred uh, to the drama department, the studio manager's drama group, and that was very exciting indeed because one sat at the feet of the stars 
Uh, and, and, and if you were very lucky, uh, you could go out to the canteen and bring back a mug of coffee for the one or two of the stars. And it was, uh, it was lovely. And it was the, um, the drama studio was just off Piccadilly Circus. I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I felt terribly lucky and, and I enjoyed meeting the stars. I had a terrible experience. I did a, a dreadful thing. They had to change the acoustic in the studios. They had enormous screens. I mean, really, really going up to about six or seven, eight feet tall uh, on quite wobbly legs. And they were moved about you know, to, to change the acoustic. And I was asked to move one of these screens. And it was enormously heavy. And as I tried to lift it, it went forward. And it was the most ghastly, demonic screech. And it had fallen on top of a very unpleasant actress called oh. Vivian Chatterton oh. on, in the BBC Repertory Company. <laughs> and... Uh, and she said, you could have killed me. <laughs> yeah, sorry, we didn't. <laughs> well, you know, I was... Uh, I, I didn't thought, mean that, Vivian, if you're, if you're listening or, or descendants of. I thought I, I, I thought I was going to be expelled. I mean, that was, that was, that was terrible. <laughs> She'd been knitting, actually. I mean, she shouldn't have been knitting. She should have been reading her script. Just to say, obviously, all this experience uh, really seemed to put you in good stead for Blue Peter. It, it was almost like you were a perfect fit by the time that came about. So tell us a little bit about that whole process. Well, Blue Peter was thought up by the then head of children's television, Owen Reid, as um, a little filler. They wanted something for the summer months, so they decided to do this magazine programme. And um, it was marvellous uh, from my point of view because... As a raw recruit, I was put in charge for it for a bit because it didn't terribly matter to the BBC what went on. And it was a terrific experience for me. And I loved I loved every moment of it. I met you know, I met very nice people and met the stars and uh, I became quite good with the coconut halves for the horses who's trotting trot, trot, trotting along. Brilliant. Yeah, it was a good. It was, and the great thing about the BBC then it was the democracy uh, of the place that all the jobs were advertised. They all went on all the notice boards. Anybody could apl could apply. I must say, it sounds like a lovely sort of fluid way to work when you get a chance to explore. I mean, the BBC still can be like that, but it depends what you're searching for. I get the impression in those golden days of radio and TV, there was a little bit more flexibility in terms of attaining new skills and uh, moving departments. Probably because I mean it was it it wasn't nearly such a huge outfit uh, mm, mm. as as it as as it is now. So let's talk about Blue Peter then. You initially got the job as producer of Blue Peter. When did the big moment come when you took over the whole programme and uh, put your stamp on it? Well, it wasn't, it wasn't quite like that. It was, ah. I went on what was known as an attachment. The BBC's very fond of attachments. Mm. And all <laughs> the jobs put on the notice board and uh, anyone could apply to be attached for six months or whatever. And... Um, 
I had been doing uh, Listen With Mother and enjoying it very much. But, of course, I, I kept thinking all the time, you want pictures, you want pictures for this age range, you must have pictures. So I jumped at the chance of getting this one of these attachments. The only problem was a proper job had not been advertised for years. Uh, so the chances of ending up working there permanently were just about nil. And um, I remember going to the very nice boss man called um, Owen Reed, saying, you know, is there any chance and blah, blah, blah. And in fact, there wasn't much of a chance because the television children's programmes department was in great disfavour. And overnight, the department was decimated. All the drama went to drama department. All the light entertainment went to light entertainment department. And so really, uh, all they'd got left, really, was uh, was Blue Peter. But of course, I didn't know any of the back this background. And my understanding was Blue Peter at the time was just a little filler programme that was not really being invested in, in in any way. It was just like languishing, really. It was really your stamp that completely kickstarted the whole thing. Well, it was. It was. Is that fair to it, say? It, it, yeah. Well, it it was. It it had been put into the schedules as just something purely for the summer months yeah. when a lot of the staff were on were on leave, mm-hmm. and it was never considered to be on this you know, stepping stone to getting a job there. But what was amazing was on the very, very last day of this attachment, lo and behold, a job went up on the board. And I thought, well, I, you know, it's ridiculous. I'm, I won't have a slightest chance of this. And I woke up the next morning and I thought, well... If I don't apply, they'll think I'm not interested, and then that you know that, that will be very bad. So um, I I applied, never thinking in a million years uh, that I'd get it, but I did. Extraordinary. Did you have any issues at the time back in the early '60s in dealing with a largely male hierarchy of the BBC? as, for example, one of your contemporaries, producer Verity Lambert, did at the beginning. Um, she was quoted as saying, for any woman, there had to be luck. And after that, there was what you did with it. So for you, uh, were there those sort of pressures at the time? Or did it not seem like that to absolutely you? Absolutely not. No, absolutely not. That's good there to was know. Nobody, it, was, it was all extremely uh, democratic. Wonderful. And, That's good uh, to hear. It was a... Well... It, it's what it should have been. I mean, that, it should have been like that. Absolutely, no. absolutely. So from BBC producer to editor of Blue Peter, that all happened quite quickly, didn't it? <laughs> I gave myself the editor's job because uh, what, what, what happened was I kind of... Um, it was an awful thing to have done. I kind of appointed myself because we were asked to do the programme uh, twice weekly. And uh, I thought to myself, well, if this is a twice weekly programme uh, and going on throughout the year, um, I should be editor. Mm. So quite right too. So I gave myself the the job, as it were, Mm. and had it um, on the credits and nobody queried it. It was extraordinary. Did it help you get a pay rise? I don't think it did help me get a pay rise. (laughs) but But the point was, I suppose... Children's programmes were regarded as so insignificant, nobody bothered what went on. And there it was. 
You're listening to SNS Online's Rise Up Women season today, featuring the former editor of Blue Peter, Biddy Baxter. Well, Biddy will be the first to admit that health and safety in the 1960s was a very different kettle of fish to what it is today. Let's take a listen to some truly iconic and occasionally quite terrifying moments from the show's early days. Parachuting was something I'd never tried before I joined Blue Peter, and my five-mile drop with the RAF's Flying Falcons was undoubtedly my biggest challenge. We flew so high we had to wear oxygen masks, and I was going to fall through space for 22,000 feet before I opened my chute. One of my earliest films was certainly the most frightening, driving a car straight through the sides of a furniture bag. When the sprayers settled, all I could see was a shattered hull, the remains of Val's boat. We were going very fast through the centre bridge, and I think we were ahead of the others. Suddenly Bob tried to look out, and there was the most enormous piece of wood right under our bath, a terrifying crash. And I looked at the back, and the engine was off, and the whole of the back of the boat was out, and it was filling with water. And the boat just tipped over, and I went in. We were rescued, though, fortunately. At this level, the plinth on which Nelson stands overhangs the column. I found myself literally hanging from the ladder with nothing at all beneath me. I could hardly believe I was in one piece, but it had happened just the way John told me it would. But you wouldn't get me to do it again, not for all the tea in China. And we're out in space! It's unbelievable! 25,000 feet! So let's talk about some of the early presenters, the iconic names like John Noakes, uh, Valerie Singleton, uh, Peter Purvis. Um, what was the selection process like? And did you have a sort of a sixth sense that these people were, were right for the show when you auditioned them? People were always writing in all the time saying, you know, I'd be a very good presenter. Yeah, it was me too, me too. <laughs> <laughs> um, anyway, we did... We, we did um, all these attachments, as they were called, were put on the BBC notice board and it was very democratic and anyone could apply. Uh, and that was a very good method of selecting new members of the team. Because a lot of these were actors, weren't they? Well, a lot of them were actors, but, of course, the great thing about Blue Peter was that they, they weren't acting. Mm. I mean, it, it was all spontaneous mm. and off the cuff. At the moment, she has 12 pints of milk a day and two Thank buckets you. of water, but when she's fully grown, yeah. she'll have 50 gallons a day, and I wouldn't like to be the one who has to give her all that. And you'll notice that she hasn't got any tusks, and actually, in Sinon, even the male uh, elephants don't have tusks. And, um, oh, we're up with a slight penny down here. <laughs> slight problem. Uh, get out of the way, I think. You're yes, supposed well. to be drinking it, Lulu. <laughs> Lulu the elephant there, ensuring endless repeat fees for Val, John and Peter, and hopefully Lulu's agent. But now it's time for part one of Dear Blue Peter. Dear Blue Peter, I am writing to tell you about our village's gala day. There is lots of stalls selling cakes, jewellery, hamburgers and drink. My dad is usually in the beer tent. Please can you come to Carl to film the fun? Trevor, Kyle. Dear Blue Peter, for God's sake, sit properly when you're wearing a kilt. Not with your legs wide apart, even if your sporran is hanging down. Pull yourself together or come off the Blue Peter programme, which you disgrace. A Scott, Gloucestershire. Dear John, for five years I've tried to persuade Edward to try an omelette without success. You managed it in five minutes. Blue Peter is great. 
Mrs. Robinson, Peterborough. A few of the many thousands and thousands of letters sent to the Blue Peter programme throughout the years. Many more examples later in the show. I'm afraid we can't read out the 10,000 names, but we will be sending off the competition badges just as soon as we can. The Green Blue Peter Badge. Today's show, the Summer Badge Baton Relay, passes on to this little guy. It is, of course, the Purple Badge. And that is how you introduce a brand new Blue Peter Badge. I'm going to hold it in my fingers. I'm going to never let go of this. And, of course, as you know, we give out silver badges to anyone who's already got a blue badge and goes on to do something a little bit different. We'd actually like to award you with our highest accolade. It is the gold Blue Peter badge thank for your you. Royal Highnesses. Thank you very much. That's very touching. Thank, thank you very, very thank much. You. And all the runners-up will be getting the Blue Peter badges as well. So you, um, Billy, introduced the Blue Peter badge, one of the earliest examples of interactivity. Now, nowadays, it's something we're so used to with our phones and tablets and computers and whatnot, voting on reality shows. But at the time, this was a really a, quite a forward-thinking um, idea. Uh, which continues today. I'm wearing my badge with pride. <laughs> I've noticed you're wearing your badge, and I'm sure it is with great pride. Absolutely. How Absolutely. did you win it? How did I win it? Well, um, I'm very, very proud of this. I, I, I didn't win it when I was 10 or 5. I think I was in my late 30s. Um, it was at TV oh. Centre, and um, it was a mattress domino toppling co- uh, contest. And it was we won the world record, and I was number two um in line after about, I don't know how many people. I fell on Andy, the Blue Peter presenter at the time. I was number two in the studio, wearing pyjamas, no less. Uh, we all were wearing pyjamas. And I got my back. I actually got two because one broke in rehearsal. So I'm very proud of that. Let's talk about uh, the actual badges then, because obviously that really encouraged people to to write in, to send in programme ideas, which obviously uh, was a very cheap way of keeping the programme alive with new ideas. Tell us about the story when you wrote to Enid Blyton when you were young and the disappointments you had there, because that seems to lead on to the whole badges and and, and, and tallying up who'd written at what time. That was very significant. Mm. Um, The much maligned Enid Blyton (laughs) produced, when I was a child, a weekly magazine called Sunny Stories. And it was all full of different stories, which I... I loved. But at the very beginning of this little magazine, there was a letter from Enid Blyton with her address, Green Hedges, blah, blah, blah. And um, Next to Toy Town. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, anyway, of course, I wrote to Enid Blyton and I had a letter back. Absolutely marvellous. I was so thrilled. And then, of course, typical child, in about three weeks, I wrote again and I received the identical letter. And I remember going to my mother in tears and saying, she doesn't remember me, she doesn't remember me. It was, but it was very salutary because I realised that we had to have some system for keeping a note of where all these badge winners were. So we set up a correspondence unit and every badge-worthy incoming letter was checked against the index. And so then we were able to say, oh, dear Nick, thank you for your letter, uh, It was nice to hear from you uh, again. 
when you last wrote to us, your tortoise um, had a bad paw or whatever <laughs> tortoises have. Do hope your tortoise is getting better. And I mean, I mean that, I've just got to say, Billy, that is so what a lovely, lovely way to just. Uh, show such respect to the children because obviously you can't keep up with all the lessons it's just not possible but to do it in that way and to offer that personal touch again it's that interactivity you feel you're closer to the program the presenters and vice versa oh it's yes it's very very good psychology Mm. and uh, and it was it was expensive obviously Mm. because it had to be staffed but the program gained so much uh, and, and such loyalty mm. from from the audience, and we were tremendously lucky in those days to have the freedom. And I, I think it is fair to say that the program was becoming very, very popular. So nobody was going to rock the boat. You've got one of the biggest studios, is that right, in, in TV Centre? Um, the biggest uh, studio was Television Centre One, which was absolutely enormous. Uh, but I mean, the studio always looked enormous on our TV screens. I mean, yes. perhaps it was just the way it was lit. Yeah. But Well, yes, that had a lot to do with it. But um, there were studios three and four, which were big, and they were just the right size. And it meant that we could do lots of things literally live uh, and not on film, you know, like driving the latest tractor into the studio. I know, um, to be able to drive actual vehicles into the studio and to have brass bands coming yes. in and all that, I mean, yes. how fantastic. Yeah, it was marvellous. And then, we, of course, we things didn't always work, but ev- there was such a difference in atmosphere. When we were doing live programmes, everybody, and all the engineering, floor managing... Everybody knew there was no no other chance, and it put them on their metal. Absolutely. And the minute we had to do, we had to record on several occasions because there just wasn't a studio available. Program planning had given our studio to somebody else. Oh, the retakes! Everybody, sort of psychological thing. Yeah. I mean, the crew. The, it, it was it was just awful. And so then we ended up losing a whole day in the week editing the wretched thing. <laughs> and, and one time, I think I believe you filmed in, in in a Doctor Who set for Tom Baker's first story because there was some strike. So you you literally were presenting from the 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 TARDIS or something. There there were there there were strikes, and there was a period when there were quite a lot of strikes, mm. and. Um, uh, several occasions, we had no lights other than the you know, the, the, the basic yeah. studio light. We had nothing; nothing was lit properly, and uh, and we just, you know, we said we we made an announcement. We said we're not allowed to have our lights today. But you know. but I mean, people like me anyway loved all that because I loved the idea of like behind the scenes. And so when we ever got a glimmer or a reference to to something like that, I always I always found that very exciting. So for me, it, it added to the program. Oh, well, it's very cheering to know that. <laughs> uh, how discriminating you were, Nick. Absolutely, absolutely. It was really hard work because when we were there as well, there was no auto cue, so you had to learn the whole script. At, you know, 10 to 5, Biddy would come and change it all again anyway, so you'd just be going on air thinking, I've got no idea what I'm about to say. This is wrong, that's wrong, I'm cutting this, I'm changing that. And it took me a couple of years to acquire a discipline 
to cope with those changes. Initially, I couldn't understand why the, there was this additional pressure. Cut that page, darling, and uh, cut that paragraph, and so suddenly your whole brain had to be changed. Now, uh, autocue was available, I believe, from the late 60s, probably early 70s, but Blue Peter didn't have it until quite late on. Now, was that a deliberate choice by you? Oh, gosh, yes. Yeah, no, oh. no. A autocue, the kiss of death. Um, <laughs> and particularly uh, Blue Peter, where we made, uh, we, only, we only ever had one run through of the complete programme. And that was after that, that was when we, you know, used to cut a little bit here, cut a little bit there, or even occasionally drop a complete, uh, a, a complete item. Um, so it was uh, very much everybody on their metal. You know, the, the, everybody was geared up. I'm sure it it helped the program enormously. Oh, absolutely! It certainly added an extra sort of frisson. But uh, I, I, there are obviously times when the presenters had so much to learn that there were the odd slips or, or memory gaps in performances uh, leading into items, etc. Was that uh, quite tricky? Oh yeah, oh yeah. Well, yes, it was. I mean, it was it was tricky. But um, I, mean, I remember poor Simon Groom having a complete dry about he's talking about darts or something, and I felt so bad for him. <laughs> Um, ah, where am I? I'm talking... Sorry. Um, absolutely, completely lost. Right, OK, let's start about dance again. Gosh, that was most unfortunate. I'm sorry to bring that up, Biddy. No, no, I felt there's a deal. Did he escape afterwards there's without a... you uh, 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 telling him off? Oh, he knew. I mean, he, <laughs> he, he knew. But, you see, he was not... He, he, he wasn't an actor. Mm. Uh, and we didn't... I mean, we didn't want people to... I mean, if we had... No, if we employed farmer from Deffit. <laughs> yeah, well, exactly. He was a farmer. Uh, and um, and that was that was marvellous because he... Except uh, he did take, bless his heart, a long time to get into the swing of the programme and, and to enjoy the programme as well. Absolutely, completely lost. Dear Sirs, my son Paul, who is five years old, asked us to send his entry for the badge competition. I'm sorry to say that the entry was not very good, and we've decided not to send it. We've not told him this, and as far as he is concerned, his entry has come through to you, but we would be grateful, in order to keep him interested, if you could send us some kind of letter to the effect of having received it, and perhaps a Blue Peter badge. I trust you will go along with us in this matter. Yours faithfully, F. Richards, Hereford. Dear Mr. Richards, Thank you for your letter of February the 17th. I must confess that all of us who work on Blue Peter were extremely sad to learn that you and your wife decided to veto your son's entry for our first day cover competition because you felt it wasn't very good. We do assure you that we always take the ages of contributors into account and this is why our competitions are judged in the following age groups. The sevens and under, the eights, nines and tens the 11s and over. We're sure that you will understand that we do not feel it's ethical to write to Paul saying we have received his entry when it was never sent to us. I am, however, enclosing a photograph which has been especially autographed for him by Leslie, Simon and Christopher. With best wishes, Biddy Baxter, editor. Well, here you are. You've got the... Fleet kite all ready for flying. Flying. Now, I've used the 
extra bit of biro. Uh, <clears throat> I'm sorry, I shouldn't mention that name, should I? It's a ballpoint pen. Ooh, I'll get my cards. Dear sir, my family and I really enjoy watching Blue Peter. It is excellent. But the last few programmes have led us to criticise John Noakes. What on earth has happened to his appearance? He always looks so unkempt. His hair looks as though he's just arisen from his bed and one or two of our friends have described him as having had one over the eight before he goes on the programme. But I shouldn't think this is so. Please, please tell him to smarten himself up. Yours faithfully, Mrs Duggan, Cheshire. Dear Sarah, could you not do something about your hair? It looks like hell. All straight, skimpy, thin, with uneven wisps. You have such a beautiful little face and lovely figure. Your hair spoils it all. One of my sons says he would like to take you out if you had a perm. The older boy says he would like to. But you would have to wear a hat. Yours, R. Roberts, Colwyn Bay. Dear Editor, if Peter Duncan wears that horrific suit again, I shall never watch Blue Peter again, nor shall I recommend it to any of my friends. Yours sincerely, Mrs. Wellthorpe, Newcastle upon Tyne. P.S. I'm just glad I don't own a colour television set. Dear Blue Peter, I warned you, now you'll be sorry. The moment I saw Peter in his garment again, I'm afraid I had to switch off. I hope you don't think this too unsporting in light of current events. Yours, Mrs. Wellthorpe. Talking about the letters, so many wonderful letters over the years, and we must flag up your book, Dear Blue Peter. It, it has a collection of the most wonderful letters, some quite sad from, from uh, children who have had quite difficult uh, upbringings, but Blue Peter was for sort of the stamp of everyday normality and striving for better things and, uh, and a better life, really, I guess. I think the audience trusted it. Absolutely. Uh, they knew that if we said we were going to do something, we'd, we'd do it. And uh, that trust was the most amazing bond between us and the viewers, you know, working, working in a, in a one-way medium. Um, no, we were very lucky, and um, we were so lucky that the bosses didn't interfere with us. Dear Sir or Madam, I hope you won't mind my writing to you like this, but my grandson, David Watson, is a great admirer of your programme on the BBC. A few years ago, he won one of your badges for painting. Well, I am his grandma, and I thought I would like you to know he is now in hospital for a spinal operation and has to be laid on his back till after Christmas in a metal frame to keep him from moving. He has been very brave all through, but a great deal of patience on his part will still be needed, and the time will surely drag. I wondered if it would be possible for you to do some little thing which would, I know, delight him. Thanking you, yours faithfully, Mrs Partridge, Yorkshire. Dear David, we've heard how patient and brave you've been during your stay in hospital, and all of us here would like to congratulate you. We're sending you our highest award, a gold Blue Peter badge, in recognition of your great personal courage. With best wishes from Valerie, John, Peter and all of us on the programme. Yours sincerely, Biddy Baxter, Editor. 
One particular one I wanted to flag up uh, was a letter by Anthony Hollander, who wanted to become a doctor. He then went on to become a doctor and said that he owes his career to you. Um, To quote, if her letter had shown any hint or ridicule or disbelief, I might have never have trained to become a medical scientist or be driven to achieve the impossible dream and really make a difference to a human being's life. Now, you did that, Billy, as you wrote back to him. I I do remember uh, that letter. And uh, yes, of course, of course, we wrote back. He mm. wrote, Dear Val, John, Peter and Leslie, this may seem very strange, but I think I know how to make people or animals alive. What I'm telling you is that I can't get the things I need. And he then he, then he wrote a shopping list of everything that was necessary to make these animals come alive. It was absolutely marvellous. A list of what I need. One, diagram of how everything works inside your body. Two, Model of a heart split in half. Six, fiberglass box, eight foot tall, three foot wide. Seven, send your answer to me. Love from Anthony London, NW11. Just wonderful. What an inspiring story. And finally, here we are with 1035 is the name of our new puppy, which is, there it is, Shep. So there you are, Shep. I now buy here. Name you Shep. Better than Pop, innit? Yes, and you're good. <laughs> He's gorgeous. Now you must have seen Blue Peter, that television prom that used to have the brave John Noakes and Shep the trusting dog. But is he really trusting when the cameras start to roll? He wanders round the studio and brave John starts to call. Get down, Shep. Keep still, boy. Do as you're told. Come here. Get down, Shep. Behave yourself or I'll cuff you around the ear. John could never be alone, no matter where he went. Cause Shep would have a sniff around and soon pick up his scent. Let's talk about the animals in Blue Peter. I mean, obviously, a lot of people living in high-rise flats, etc., didn't have pets. Uh, you know, it, it gave them the opportunity to have their own virtual pet, if yes. you like. Oh, it certainly did. And our first uh, puppy... Well, actually, not our first puppy. Our well, let's talk about that. <laughs> our, well, I went with um, Edward Barnes to scar the pet shops uh, <laughs> in the area and um, we came across a dear little puppy uh, which we thought marvellous. This little puppy had one brief appearance uh, on the programme. She was handed over to presenters uh, by the head of the department. It was one Christmas and she made one appearance and then she died. Oh dear, the little puppy. it It was absolutely horrendous and I made a decision that this little poor little creature had only been on one episode of the programme. So you know, children in the audience couldn't have become fond of it uh, because it had been so fleeting. So I decided it would be so traumatic to tell the audience, some very, very young children, you know, four uh, and absolutely. five, uh, going up. Mm. So we decided, we took a deliberate... The, the only... Um, bit of deception uh, that, I, that, that I can recollect. But I'm sure we were absolutely right to, to have done that. No, I think you and dealt with it very well. Dear Petra, 
My name is Nicholas Whiten. I only heard the other day that you are diabetic. I am diabetic as well as you, and on May the 29th, my mummy is having a jubilee party just for diabetic children, so that we don't feel out of the celebrations. I would like for you to come to my party if it's possible. My mummy will give your injection. Lots of love, Nicholas. The wonderful thing about having pets on the programme mm. is that they provide a link between us and right up the age range. Mm. And the very, very smallest... I mean, children of three and four and five, for whom really the programme wasn't absolutely ideal, ideal uh, loved, they loved the animals. And that enhanced the popularity of the programme enormously. We all have our favourites as well. I mean, I remember Jason and uh, Shep, of course, is probably the most popular uh, Blue Peter dog. Get, um, get down, Shep. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and didn't uh, um, a tortoise uh, have a, a sex change? Or, or rather, it was um, the wrong sex was attributed to said tortoise? Yes, I, I think we were a, a, a <laughs> bit... Um, off the mark with the, with, with the tortoise. I mean, I'm not, I wouldn't quite sure how you would uh, sort of find out, right? I wouldn't know where to look, really. Well, I can't remember where, where we looked. <laughs> but anyway, it was some, I mean, it was somebody quite eminent. I think it was probably somebody from a contact we had in London Zoo uh, pointed out right. well, there was this little, this, this little problem. Mm. You're listening to SNS Online's Rise Up Women's Season with today's fabulous special guest, Biddy Baxter. And if you want to contact us about this or any other show, then please follow our Facebook and Twitter pages or email us at snsonlineshow at gmail.com. All our shows are available and free to download from our SNS Online SoundCloud page. And now, in celebration of 60 years of Blue Peter, here are 10 top facts compiled by us. Episode 1 of Blue Peter was broadcast on the 16th of October, 1958. The first two presenters were Christopher Trace, an actor, and Leela Williams, formerly winner of Miss Great Britain, 1957. The iconic Blue Peter badge was designed by another icon of children's television, Tony Hart. Over 5,000 editions have been broadcast since 1958. To celebrate this and the 60th anniversary of the show, a new diamond Blue Peter badge was designed to add to the six already available. The term Blue Peter is in fact used as a maritime signal. The name was chosen to represent a voyage of adventure on which the programme would set out. In November 2013, Biddy was presented with a BAFTA for her work on Blue Peter. Over a million people have won Blue Peter badges throughout the show's history, allowing them free access to many museums and events around the UK. Biddy has so far received two honorary doctorates, one from the University of Newcastle and the other from her earlier stamping ground, the University of Durham. 37 full-time presenters have featured on Blue Peter since the beginning. These were most sought after and many thousands could be known to apply, including uh, me, actually. <laughs> Unfortunately, I was sick on a trampoline during the audition, and the rest, as they say, isn't history. Biddy was herself awarded not only a Blue Peter badge, but a gold Blue Peter badge when she left the programme on the 27th of June, 1988. 
And that's SNS Online's top 10 top facts about the UK's best-loved children's TV show. And we didn't even get around to mentioning Biddy receiving her MBE in 1981 by the Queen of England, no less. That's 11, then. How was that, Biddy? Do you reckon I'm sounding like a Blue Peter presenter? Nick, wrong show. This is SNS Online. Yeah, I know, but if it was back in the day and I was auditioning, what do you reckon? Oh, golly. What are you trying to say, Biddy? You failed your audition for Blue Peter 20 years ago, remember? Charming. Dear Blue Peter, I would like to say thank you very much. When you said that the Titanic would be on the show, I did not think it would be that interesting. You made it so it was easy to understand. I felt I was on the ship when it sank. It was easy to learn and understandable for people my age and younger. I am 10 years old and have started up my own personal project. I have not finished it yet, but when I do, do you think I could send it in to let you see? You have got me really inspired. I made my own up. It goes like this. So many screams and cries. Why did it have to happen? All they wanted was a peaceful holiday. Nobody likes getting killed. So much history, so much pain. As the people watch in horror, lots of people died. I think it is pretty good, but that's just my opinion. Yours sincerely, Eleanor Lilithgow. Dear JLNP, Congratulations on the success of your BBB's appeal. A wonderful achievement. May I suggest that you think up a scheme to pull the BBC out of the red? I'm sure you can do it. Yours sincerely, OAP viewer, Staffordshire. Dear Val, Peter, Leslie and John, We have a dog named Fluff who plays football and who can head her just as well as the dog you have. She is a Welsh sheepdog, a bit like Shep, but she has grey patches. Please tell Percy Thrower, could he please measure plants and flowers in centimetres, not inches, because I'm 11 and haven't a clue about inches, yards and feet. Yours sincerely, Simon Difford. Dear Blue Peter, I am writing on behalf of my four-year-old sister Julia, who was terrified when on Friday's show Matt fell into some quicksand. She thinks he is dead. I was shocked to see something so violent on Blue Peter, which is a show intended for young children. I hope I shall never see anything like that again on Blue Peter. Love from Zoe. SNS Online presents the soundtrack of your life. So we now come to the soundtrack of your life where you get a chance to pick a a track that might resonate professionally, personally, or just because it makes your feet tap or all three. But just to to get a a sense of the inner Baxter. (laughs) I find this the most awful question to answer. You really have. So many tunes, so little time. Oh, you put me on the spot. Well, one of of my favourite pieces was... um, from Benjamin Britten's Ceremony of Carols, uh, a piece called Deo Gracias. Thank you. 
Peter, Cobbs County Infant School is helping Cambodia from starving. On Blue Peter last week, I saw a picture of a little boy's bones, ribs and felt really sorry for him. We in England are very lucky that we have a lot of food and health and living without being starving. Love, Joanne Warrington. Let's talk about the Blue Peter appeals. I mean, the amount of money raised I've got here, and this is this is a, 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 something I printed out from probably best part of 10 years ago, uh, 100 million plus raised by Blue Peter appeals since it started in 1962. Now, that's an awful lot of money. Yes, and that, it's very, very interesting that there had been, um, before I joined Blue Peter, a tradition of, on the pre-Christmas programme, showing a whole range of incredible toys, you know, the, the best possible toys mm. uh, you could imagine. And it was awful. The thing that was wrong about it was that it was all, you know, grab, 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 what's in it for me? And we thought it would be very salutary to say there will be some children this Christmas who aren't going to have any presents. Yeah, and that's how the appeal started. And then uh, we expanded that to good causes abroad as well as at home. Dear Blue Peter, I've just been watching your programme and I saw the film about Beirut and heard about the stamps you want. These are all the stamps I could find now, but as soon as I have more, I will send them to you. I'm an 18-year-old Lebanese and I'm very grateful to you for wanting to help us all in Lebanon. The war has ruined thousands and many people are in need of help urgently. If there's anything I can do to help my people at home, please let me know. Thank you for all you do for Lebanon. Diana, London. And um, it was just amazing the, re the response we had from the audience and from organisations with fire brigades, banks. It, it was it just caught the imagination. And I'm sure it was because we didn't ask for money. Some money came in, and uh, I mean, obviously, but we always asked for rubbish mm. that could be converted into cash. So I think we played a great part in, in uh, clearing up the, the nation's rubbish. Well, recycling, of course. Brilliant. Yes. Um, the other thing that was an integral part of it was we worked out uh, the target that we wanted to hit uh, with this thing we called the totalizer. Uh, so every programme, we used to launch it just before Christmas and carry on till after Christmas. The next very important thing was not to ask for money. We're calling it our rags appeal because that's what we want, rags. Or to be more precise, old wool and cotton. We want you to collect them, send them to us, and we, for every can you send us, will turn into money. I seem to remember a arrival of yours, and I'm sure you, you would spit the name out of your mouth, <coughs> Magpie, um, just actually ask for money from people. Like, yeah. Yes, but it wasn't, I mean, some people do sometimes bang on about Magpie, or didn't bang on about Magpie. <laughs> but it was, I mean... They didn't have the staying power of the BBC. Well, we, we didn't bother about it, because it was so... Um, it didn't have good presenters. Uh, well, one or two 
would not Susan Strengths was quite nice. But Susan Strengths was very pretty. That's, <laughs> that's, that's, that, that's absolutely true. But we didn't want to ask for money because we didn't think it was fair. But mm. what we had to do with every appeal was to work out... We asked for rubbish, of different kinds of rubbish, and we, we, we worked out how much rubbish could be sent to us for a second-class stamp mm. so that if you could only afford a second-class stamp, you could make a contribution. Mm. And, and it worked. Mm. It was, it was a, a very fair idea, and I'm positive uh, it enabled far more children to join in mm. than if we just asked for money. My driver was John Blocky, who became British champion a week after he took me down the run. John was giving me the ride of a lifetime. We shot round every corner perfectly and got our speed up to around 90 miles an hour. But we didn't know that ahead of us there was a hole in the ice wall and by a million to one chance, we hit it. Dear John, when I heard about your accident on Monday, I was rather angry. It always seems to me that you do the jobs that are dangerous or exhausting. For around 100 metres, I was trapped upside down in the bobs, but then I managed to get out. I thumped onto the ice and carried on down the track on my backside, still doing around 80 miles an hour. The bob carried on, righted itself on the last bend and shot through the finishing post with John Blocky still in it. I was 150 metres behind him. I too went through the finishing post on my backside, but I was too dazed to notice. I would like to see Peter doing some of these jobs instead of you. Not for all the tea in China. If I see you doing some dangerous jobs again, I have a good mind to stop watching Blue Peter. Timothy, Cheshire. P.S. I am glad to hear you are right. Dear Timothy, thank you for your letter. Please don't worry, I enjoy having a go at dangerous assignments and I can assure you I am never forced to do anything I don't want to do. I do hope you enjoyed seeing the bobsleigh run. I certainly enjoyed making it in spite of the bruises. With best wishes from all of us on the programme. Yours sincerely, John Noakes. Well, one of Billy's many favourite moments on Blue Peter was when Princess Anne gave the right royal seal of approval to the programme, no less than three times, but most recently in 2012 when she opened the brand new Blue Peter Garden, now relocated to Salford. However, the first two were in 1971, when Valerie Singleton joined the princess on safari in Kenya, the resultant film being narrated by Biddy herself. Wherever we looked, there was a baboon lurking. We found them quite alarming, but the hunters had pet names for the regulars. This one was called Gladys. I find still now, when, you know, although I've been doing Blue Peter for quite a long time, but every now and again I still get sort of butterflies in my tummy. Do you find now there are certain things that make you feel a little bit nervous, like perhaps making a speech? I think like in practically anything you do, if you stop having nerves, then really, you know, you're not doing the job as well as you ought to be. Mm. So I think if you have a fit of nerves, you, you do that job that bit better yes, than Dear Miss Singleton, do please stop doing your hair as if you were a young girl. It is unbecoming, undignified and stupid. It makes you look like one of those cheap flappers. I often wonder what the royal family think about it. Do please look your age when appearing. Yours hopefully, HWCC Sussex. 
Another Blue Peter scoop under Billy's watchful eye was in 1979 when Anne Frank's father Otto came to the studio to show Leslie Judd and the viewers his daughter's actual diary. Biddy and the whole team were extremely moved by the experience and incredibly impressed with Mr. Frank's dignity and astonishing lack of bitterness. Anna wrote in one of her diaries, I want to go on living after my death. And in a certain way, through her diary, she is living on in many hearts. Anna, in her diaries, comes across as a very optimistic and very cheerful girl. Was she like that? Well, she showed herself like that. But in fact, I only learned to know her, really, through her diary. I know that there is an Anna Frank Foundation, Mr. Frank. What is the purpose and the aim of it? Well, in short, I should say, to fight against prejudice and discrimination, respectively hatred Mm -hmm. against people of different race and religion. Dear Blue Peter... I have just watched today's programme and would like to say how much I enjoyed the show. I was watching when Val, John and Peter put the time capsule in the ground in 1971. My daughter was then seven years and my son three and a half years. Well, we've been digging quite a big hole here because we're not only going to plant the tree, we also want to bury this box. Because as Val says, in the year 2000, we do hope that Blue Peter will still be continuing... But Val John and I almost certainly won't be in it because we'd be far too old. So we thought we'd like to leave souvenirs of what we were like and of what the programme was like here in 1971. We have all watched since and now my four grandchildren watch and make the things that you do. I hope that I shall still be watching your show when the time capsule you planted today is opened. And welcome to an important moment in the history of Blue Peter. Today we are going to be revealing the contents of two time capsules buried by Blue Peter in the past so that you, the children of the new millennium, could discover something about the programme as it used to be. But you know what? The new millennium isn't just a time for digging up old capsules. No, it's also a time for burying new ones. It certainly is, and people all over Britain are going time capsule crazy, aren't they, Matt? They certainly are. It's amazing. Now, our time capsule that's buried underneath the Millennium Dome was put together by Blue Peter viewers, and it's things that they loved in the 20th century that they thought children in the 21st might like to see. By my reckoning, I shall be 94 years old, but I shall do my best to be around. Perhaps with great-grandchildren, who knows? Keep up the good work. I love you all. Yours truly, Mrs Ingleby, Rugby. Whose idea was it for the time capsule? Uh, I mean, I just thought it captured so many people's imagination. Yes, we had to, um, we had to dig it up when um, BBC left uh, Television Centre. It, it was buried in the Blue Peter Garden. Mm. Uh, surprise, surprise. <laughs> it was the back of Television Centre. By the canteen. <laughs> by the, absolutely. I have uh, been by there. By the canteen. And I'm sad to say that it hadn't stood the test of time. Mm. And it was a it bit was, soggy. It was more than a bit soggy. Mm. It was irreparably damaged. Oh so we had to uh, we had to hope nobody would remember that we <laughs> buried it. <laughs> Actually, I, to be honest, uh, we did say we'd, we'd, we'd found it and we, did, mm. we, sh- we showed... The way it had been. I remember destroyed. it being examined. I think they dried things out, and uh, yeah. so we still got to, a yes. chance to see it. it. It certainly worked as an item. It spread over the generations. It was, it was very successful. Yeah, we were honest. We were honest about it, and mm. and, and in yeah. the end, that's the best thing to be. 
Difficult uh, always to remember if you tell lies. <laughs> Vandals broke into the Blue Peter Garden and caused rather a lot of damage. And one really cruel thing they did was to pour fuel oil into the fish pond. Well, we've drained the pond and we've rescued some of the fish, but a few of them have died and the oil itself has caused a lot of damage. Dear Simon, Peter and Janet, I was very upset to hear about the vandals who messed up the Blue Peter Garden and to put oil in the fish pond. I've sent some seeds to help put some colour back into it. Love from Sarah, age 7, Leeds. Dear Biddy, I would like to tell you about my unusual hobby. I keep a balloon in the air with my feet wearing flippers. My record is 10 minutes. As I don't know anyone else with this hobby, I claim the world record. Yours sincerely, Toby James Bennett. In uh, Richard Marsden's um, Blue Peter diaries, um, he uh, mentioned that um, Blue Peter was virtually unique in having such a peerless archive of material that was never junked, unlike many Doctor Whos of the time and other uh, classic shows, credits you with stopping that from happening. Yes. So, I mean, fantastic, because so much was junk. So much classic television was junked in, in the 70s, but you hung on to it. Obviously, to repeat some of the films, but, but just mm. had to keep that archive going very forcefully. It was, it was absolutely appalling. And I remember um, that time uh, we were working in the, sometimes in the Lime Grove studios as well as Television Centre. And uh, I remember coming out at lunchtime, out of the studio, and we had to cross a sort of little courtyard area called Smith's Yard. And um, there was this huge bonfire going on. They were burning reels and reels of film. It was dreadful. It, would, it, was, it was just, just dreadful. A Absolutely. lot of valuable archive material, yep. which should have been kept and mm. treasured by the BBC, went up in smoke on mm. BBC premises. But, uh, you know... Well done for, for thinking ahead like that, because not many people did at the time. Can I just say I was disgusted by the sexual innuendo used in today's edition of Blue Peter. After the making of a market stall, one of the male presenters said to the female presenter who'd made the stall with Todd Carty, How much are your melons? In a children's programme with such a good reputation, I was disgusted to hear such a sexist comment coming like this from one of the presenters. My daughters were shocked to hear a comment like this on a programme they normally enjoy and decided themselves to turn it off. Mark Cunningham, disgusted parent. In 1998's Blue Peter Confidential, a documentary about the show on BBC Two, Biddy herself was put under the spotlight by some past Blue Peter presenters and colleagues. I loved her. I loved her. I thought she was a one-off. I thought she, she was terribly astute. And I had a lovely kind of uh, relationship with her. She would resent ruthless, but she was ruthless on, path, on behalf of the audience, and I think she would accept that. And uh, she would die for the audience, really. Because I'd grown up watching the programme, I always imagined Biddy Baxter to be this little cardigan, grey-haired person, you know, rather sweet cardigan, not actually on, but just draped around her shoulders, in fact. The thing that everyone will remember about Biddy, no question about it, is the sound of her. 
And it was the sound of her approaching for either notes or to bollock somebody or whatever it was. <laughs> the sound of Eddie is stilettos down the steps from the gallery. Click, 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 click. Click, click, clicking down the metal steps. You know, by the pace of the heels, you know how bad you'd been or what had gone wrong, you know. Somebody said the other day, you know, were you frightened of Biddy? I think most of the BBC was, probably still is. Great respect for her, but uh, she was very demanding. If you'd been introduced to Biddy as an editor, you would absolutely assume that you must mean she's the editor of Vogue or Harper's um, or even Cosmo, actually. Uh, <laughs> Because that's what she looks like. Wearing black tights that you just knew weren't tights were stockings. Who thought nothing of dipping forward and showing a little too much décolletage. Well, not too much as far as the scoutmasters were concerned, because that's when she used it. You know, she could persuade any scoutmaster with one dip to spend an extra hour in the garden with those scouts, even if they were freezing to death to get the right shot. I thought, yeah. I like this woman. She's going to be a challenge, but I'm going to really enjoy working with her. And my God, she taught me so much. So this is a sort of a right to reply um, question, Biddy, mm. um, because it, obviously it was made clear that you were very, very dedicated towards Blue Peter. And perhaps some people might have misinterpreted that as something rather dictatorial. Now, my take on it is that you were coming from one direction and possibly the young presenters who wanted a life outside the studio as well as a career presenting Blue Peter perhaps were coming from a, a, another direction in, in the sense that you wanted to get the very best out of your presenters, quite rightly, and I understand that. But there seemed to be occasionally a clash I, I don't. I, I think it was perfectly natural. Mm. I mean, it, it, it's, it happens all the time in the arts. People have different opinions, and to which they're perfectly entitled. Mm. Mm. In the end, uh, there has to be uh, one person or a small group who uh, who have the final say, mm. and uh, that was true in our mm. case. Apparently, John Noakes seemed to particularly struggle. I think he felt he was considered a bit of a dim-witted Yorkshireman um, by you. I don't know if that's true or not. No, the the problem with the, the final problem with John was that he'd had the dog Shep, the program yes. dog Shep. You know, mm. get down Shep, <laughs> and um, and then John he'd been on the program a long time decided to leave that was fine mm. and I remember going to Edward Barnes who was mm. by then head of BBC television children's programs and I said I do think we ought to get John to sign a paper saying that he will not um, put Shep into any kind of advertising mm. And Edward which said, which well, I understand. You, you really, you know, Edward said, "Are oh, you sure?" I said, "Well, I, I think it might be wise." And of course, John was furious. He bought another border collie, called it Skip. Skip. Uh, and they, they did adverts together, mm, mm. but it didn't last very long. Mm. But it would have been absolutely appalling mm. if uh, the program dog had been put in advertisements it would have been a, a betrayal it'll be too much like blue peter is advertising this product yeah yeah absolutely i mean i get that completely i, I yeah there's not much else to to add to that one really <laughs> <laughs>
Now, some people argue that nostalgia has kept Blue Peter on air, but I do beg to differ. Based on watching it very recently in preparation for this interview, um, I thought it was brilliant. The two current presenters, Lindsay and Radzi, were fantastic. Hello! You're watching live, Blue Peter, and this is our 5,000th episode! You are essentially Ooh. watching history in the making as we speak. All right, no pressure, Rads. That means it's going to have to be an amazing episode. Luckily, we've planned a pretty good one. I've been perfecting Radzi's happy dance to add to my repertoire of silly dances that include uh, the drunk giraffe and the dying fly, by the way. And I was so... I was so impressed. It was just full of content and fun and interactivity. It's only once a week on Children's BBC. So in that respect, I appreciate that it's been tucked away a little bit. But this is the way TV is now. But it, it seems to be as strong and has a strong identity as it ever has had. That's a huge compliment. It really is. And it's a, and it's a compliment to... Uh, not only to me and Edward Barnes and, uh, and Rosemary Gill, but also to the current editors. I mean, Richard Marson. Uh, Richard mm. Marson did a terrific job. Absolutely. Comes across as a, as a thoroughly lovely bloke as well, uh, reading the diaries he's done. And, mm. um, and also has uh, produced one of my favourite documentaries about Television Centre, which you uh, feature uh, alongside Edward Barnes. A real passion project, you could tell. Yes, no, he was terrific. Well, Biddy's final edition of Blue Peter as editor aired on the 27th of June, 1988. These are some of the many letters she received around that time. Dear Blue Peter, I'm very sorry to hear that Biddy Baxter will be leaving soon, so I wrote this letter sending my love to her. I can just imagine how she would feel. So do you think you could say how sorry I am? I think she must work very hard to get things ready. Blue Peter is my very best programme. Also, I wish it could be on every day. Lots of love, Danielle, Hertfordshire. Dear Biddy Baxter, I'm sorry to hear that you're leaving, but I hope you will find a great new job. Good luck and best wishes. From Alexander John Bishop. Dear Biddy Baxter, May I wish you good luck and excellent health for your future after such a long time as the head of Blue Peter. Surely a great success story under your guidance. You have given me hours of happiness over many years and I have had charming answers to several letters I have written to you in the past. I hope the high ideals you have maintained will go on as before as a tribute to your dedication. I wish you well and success in your next venture. Yours very sincerely, Mrs Barber, Bridport. Dear Miss Baxter, Just one more tribute to your excellent work as editor of Blue Peter over all these years. I was on holiday, hence the delay in writing. Apart from my pleasure in seeing a woman doing a good job and being seen to do it, the quality of the Blue Peter programmes has been excellent all the years I have watched them, since I got a TV in 1962 or so. They give pleasure and are educational to a wide range of viewers without in any way talking down to them. In one way, I am sorry for your successor, for you have set such a high standard. But I wish her or him well. Whatever you do, know I am sure you will do it well, and I wish you joy and success in it. Thank you very much. Yours sincerely, 
Nancy Anderson, Belfast. So 60 years of Blue Peter, how long do you see it going, another 60? <laughs> well, I mean, Blue Peter's a magazine programme. Mm. There's absolutely nothing uh, it can't cover uh, within reason, considering the age range it's for. Mm. But I think there's no reason why it shouldn't go on and on forever. That's a lovely full stop to this interview. Billy Baxter, thank you so much. It only remains for me to give you your celebrity goodie bag. And as you are children's television royalty, you get two goodie bags. How about that? I'll just pass them across. Two so. goodie bags. Good. Lots of lovely prezzies for you. I don't deserve all this. Now, one of the most important prezzies is our badge. Because from today, we will be presenting all our guests with an SNS Online badge. And you are the instigator of this, because if it wasn't for this show, we, we wouldn't really thought about it. So you now can proudly wear, if you feel the need to wear it, SNS Online badge, as I will wear your Blue Peter badge, Biddy. There's nothing I would like to do more. <laughs> Millions of thanks. Biddy Baxter, thank you so much. again go to the legend that is Billy Baxter. Also thanks to the BBC and in particular the Blue Peter production team and presenters past and present. Letters from Billy's book Dear Blue Peter, all written by Blue Peter viewers over many years, were read out by Derek Clark, Never Missirian, Nathan Dodd, Charlotte Dodd, Dominic Delaghi, Sarah Crawley, Sylvia Delaghi Crawley, Nick Delaghi Crawley, Halla Hindawi, Mike Regard, Victoria Hastings, Nishtat Lada, Tom Birchall, Gwen Chien Glynn, Fiona Fairmanner, Danny Cox, Kathy Clugson and our very own Marion Marshall. Our next show in our Rise Up Women series features children's author Carolyn Robinson. But until then, from me, Nick Randall, goodbye. Basically about these incredibly brave, brilliant, extraordinary young women aged mainly between 18 and 28 who flew planes to the front line during World War II. Do you think Emily Davison wanted to kill herself that day? All her journalism is about martyrdom and fire and sacrifice and nobility and awakenings. 
It just reads like one long suicide note. I think she really meant to do it. Because I wanted the world to get better, and I knew it couldn't get better if it's going to be ruled by men. Matter of fact, I think it's amazing how well the men did for 2,000 years, considering they tried to do it alone. I really feel that all the things about being gay can help us as adopters because we know what it's like to feel different and we can share that with our children and I think the level of empathy is, is quite unique and important. I thought to myself, well, if this is a twice-weekly programme uh, and going on throughout the year, um, I should be editor. So I gave myself uh, the, the job, as it were, and had it um, on the credits and nobody queried it. It was extraordinary. Girls in the Women's Auxiliary Air Force are being called upon to handle many of the responsible jobs which were previously entrusted only to RAF mechanics and ground staff. And they flew without radar, without sometimes without training on that particular plane. You know, they'd have learnt on a tiger moth and they'd be given a spitfire. I don't think it did help me get a pay rise, <laughs> but, the but, 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 but the point was, I suppose children's programmes were regarded as so insignificant, nobody bothered what went on. Pauline Gower was the woman who spearheaded it. She got equal pay for equal work. Yes, the first woman ever very, in Britain very to do it. very, very topical in the news at the moment. still fighting that battle in 2018. <laughs> How does that happen? Rise Up Women, a special season of shows exclusive to SNS Online.